my favorite stories to tell is that of Russell Sorg and Chuck Schuff. Russell Sorg was significant. He was the um, treasurer of our church growing up in, when I was growing up in Fremont, Ohio, having moved there when I was eight. And uh, he was the treasurer of, a, of the local sauerkraut company, actually, and became president at some point, too. But he was wild about football. And that meant that uh, he had season tickets to the local high school games. He had season tickets for all of the Ohio State home games. And he had season tickets for the Cleveland Brown, Browns home teams, home games. When he wasn't in church during the fall, you knew he was at a Browns game. It was, if it was away, he was there. He was one of those really committed guys. He was there you know, with the community when he was in town. His support, though, with Chuck Schuff was as a, as a fan and as a fellow church member, actually, too. Um, Schuff was the head coach of the local high school football team. And the first year that he was there, um, the team went one and nine. And as you know about typical, unfortunately, um, worst type fans, he heard about that all season. And uh, the next year, I think it was maybe two, seven, and one, and then it was five, four, and one, and then he was very successful, nine wins for the next three seasons. Each one of those games, however, that he lost in his early years, Russell Sorg was in the locker room afterwards each time, giving him encouragement, affirming the job that he was done, giving him a sense of worth. And that kind of loyalty is, is, is pretty amazing. And it is also something godlike and Christlike. It strikes me that it, it reminds me a bit of today's text where we have Jesus meeting this person who in her life had had many failures, had had the brokenness that afflicts all human beings. Um, but was so broken that she avoided being around others. Today's text really is about God's pursuit of us at our times, at our moments which we, in which we feel worthless. The powerful theme of the scriptures today is water. Water, first of all, is a basic human need. That's what we get in Exodus. Uh, in Exodus, we see Moses in a situation where they, they simply were thirsty. They had arrived at a location and there were no resources for the community. And he faced what is a relatively typical crowd, and that is angry, pretty desperate, given their numbers in a time of physical need, fearful that they were dying of thirst. Um, I'm concerned so much that they, they were not in any good mood, and even the place itself is named because of their behavior. Um, Massa and Meribah, as um, Elizabeth mentioned, meaning quarreling and testing. They were quarreling with each other. They were quarreling about, quarreling about the faithfulness or lack thereof of God. They were perhaps testing Moses and God, but they were certainly quarreling about the quality of leadership they were given, one could imagine. And Moses was temperamental. I know that feeling very well and took it personally. Took it personally. For God, this was, this was basic human behavior. And God gently counseled Moses on how to deal with the situation. Water, basic. And it really is. It's an ongoing human need, as we know. 
Um, it can be exacerbated also by the fact of just our population. We're somewhere between 20 and 40 times the population in the world as that of the time of Jesus. 20 to 40 times as large of a species in terms of numbers. So it matters. It matters when we think about water and the limitations, right? And it's interesting that we, we know about that in the Great Lakes. It's interesting, I hadn't heard this, but it, it, you might recall a little over two decades ago, there was a company in Canada that was wanting to send 50 tankers of water of Great Lakes specifically Superior, Lake Superior water to Asia. That was their proposal um, because of the need elsewhere in the world. That fell apart, but nonetheless a fascinating thing, turning water into a commodity this was. In 2018, there was a Michigan um, state agency that contracted with the Nestle Corporation to allow them to extract um, 576,000 gallons a day from the White Pine Springs well. Now, it didn't really matter that 80,000 80, citizens registered their discontent over against the 75 that were in favor of it. Nestle won the contract. We know about water and disputes over water. It's a limited resource, we know. And then, of course, the Southwest. We've heard news of, in past years, of Southwestern United States during drought periods really looking in a rather um, um, yearning way, I suppose, uh, at all this ma uh, amazing fresh water that contains 20% of the fresh water of the, of the planet up here in these parts. And so it's a fascinating thing for us to think about how we relate to water, even in our part of the world. Well, then go to parts of the world in which it's real need. Go to Nepal, go to India, other part, dry parts of the world, places where the infrastructure, given the growth in population, is wearing out and water is at a premium. And so private companies have started providing them. The problem is that what has happened is not only is the quality of the water not always dependable, but they're selling the water sometimes at 40 to 50 times the amount that the government would provide if the pipes were working well. Undermining the rebuilding of the, of the infrastructures what some, is what some of these private companies also does, do. I, and what's interesting is that people no longer are spending like 3 to 4% of their income for water, but are spending anywhere from 20 to 50% of their income just to have the basic need to be able to survive. Those are just a handful of the disputes over this thing that is such a resource and fundamental to all of life. When we find out on planets that water's a possibility, we think, ah, life's a possibility. And it remains, as I've just shown you, it remains a source of quarreling and dispute, just as the people of ancient Israel. It would probably be wise for us to rethink that in light of one of a teaching that Gandhi offered. That is, the world, the world has enough for everyone's need. The world does not have enough for everyone's greed. What does it mean for us to think about that basic resource? I think that we're called as faithful Christians or people trying to be faithful Christians to consider that level. 
But let's move to the second level, which is really John. And there's this encounter that we've just talked about a bit between Jesus and this woman of Samaria. The big cue in the passage that I read, because the passage that the lectionary offers begins at verse 5 and goes through verse 42. The part that we read, though, already gives us a hint that there's something out of the ordinary going here, that this woman is coming to get her water at the well when she's the only one doing that. It's not the community of women that in their ritual come to the well at a regular time during the day. She doesn't come at that time. She avoids the other women. She's there avoiding them for a reason. And it seems to be the case. What Jesus seems to uh, have the insight into in the verses that follow what it, um, I read today is that she has had a broken life in terms of relationships. Very broken ones. And there's a sense in which she knows that she's perceived as lower than what is really truly her right as a, a person of dignity. But she knows her reputation leaves her way down here in the eyes of the rest of the people in the community. So she avoids them. She knows that the so-called worthy ones don't accept her. Why does she want to be around them? When she feels shame, why should she continue to have that affirmed? So Jesus has this conversation in which he takes her down this path out of the sense of unworthiness to an affirmation of her full dignity before the eyes of God. He knows that she has brokenness to face. But she's able to face that. He believes that there is courage within her to be able to do that. It's really a story about someone who is disconnected from the community. And this one who wants her to work and wants her to believe that she can reestablish connection. Because community, water feeds us, I should say nourishes us, quenches our thirst. But relationships are also key to what it means to be human. And her not having healthy, healed relationships is a real problem. So he calls her forth to take that step. And she's willing to do so. She understands the ability to do so. Charles Colson, um, one of the henchmen of Richard Nixon's during the terrible days of the White House, when things were just not going well, landed in prison because of his behavior. And he wrote a book about that experience. And in the book, you read about his observations of other prisoners and how there were some prisoners who came in there strong and with, with big egos and so forth, but over time developed what he called the prison shuffle. Their sense of self over time simply went down and down. There were those who chose to sleep as much of the day as they possibly could. That was their escape. There were those who simply turned to their inner world and, and lived within it, allowed resentment to build up within them, and were broken within. He was, he was describing that story to talk about the imprisonment of the imprisoned, the inner imprisonment. It reminded me of that one of my favorite movies, The Shawshank Redemption. The film, you might not know this, or you may know that it's based on a short story by Stephen King. And in it, you could see the inmates of this prison. The film was actually done at the Manfield State Prison that was about 50 miles from where we lived in Ohio. 
and you could see the lives of these inmates and those who seemed like they had made their home in prison and if they got out, there's no way they could make it. And then there were those who seemed to be preparing to try to get out, to be preparing to try to see what might be the possibility on the other side. Well, it was confirming precisely, of course, what Colson experienced as well. There's a story that is told about this eye surgeon who repeatedly um, had encountered with a a merchant on the corner who sold pencils, who had a sort of a stall, and who happened to be blind. And over time, he got to know him and finally invited him to come to his office to allow him to do the surgery, because after he examined him, he thought he could give him back his sight. But the man said no. He said it would alter his lifestyle too much, and he didn't think he could cope with the change. What does it mean for us to be confronted with our brokenness and given the possibility of overcoming that? We have to choose, and we don't, we're not compelled to choose to go the direction of healing, but certainly Christ would want us to choose in that direction. I love that great speech of uh, um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Here is this man who is physically paralyzed. He was someone who tried as much as he could, knowing the, the, the period of history in which he lived, to not make a big deal about that, to not allow himself to be seen that much in public um, in, uh, with his braces on or with his crutches. What was amazing, though, is that he had the insight at the beginning of his presidency to identify the problem of the nation as being that of paralysis, paralyzed by fear. If you read his first speech, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. That's not the end of the thought. He says, I'm talking about paralyzing fear that keeps us from taking the actions that we must. I think that this passage has to do with confronting people, confronting a person who has, who's trapped in, imprisoned by, perhaps even paralyzed within, about her life and her relationship to those around him, around her, and Jesus is inviting her out. You perhaps know the thought of Brene Brown, and she's someone who speaks a lot about shame over against guilt. Guilt is something that is, it's simply a flaw in behavior. Shame is something that we see as, as marking our very personalities, our very persons. And she's someone who says, you know, the, the very important thing is to get over, to be freed from fear and terror in the face of what we see to be our inadequacy and our lack of worth. And her call to people is, is to embrace the courage. Embrace the courage to discover and embrace and express learning to express who we are and offer who we are to the world. We have this uh, coronavirus that's a very interesting thing, talking about disconnection and social distancing. You know, it's, it's affected celebrations of excellence, um, of, as in celebrations of our most um, creative selves. And so all these tournaments and sports have been canceled. All these concerts from, from coast to coast have been, have been um, canceled as well. Um, we're going to be discussing the session is, uh, what are we going to do? How do we do worship over the coming weeks? Um, community for a lot of people is going to be reduced to their households. And that can be a real 
really lonely business. It can also be a business that is boring over time and restricted to the walls of our house. Yet, you know, we're constantly thinking about strategies for making connection. And what's amazing about technology now is that there are paths in which we can do that at least as a temporary holding pattern until this terrible virus is solved. And so you see schools across the country strategizing for how to do school online. And you have the governor closing schools starting Wednesday for a few days so that we can still um, be safe, but also connected with one another. So, so key for us to think about that that this thing does not have to overwhelm us in our community, but that we can do something to remain connected. I believe that that's what the Spirit wants us to be about. And I think it's a spirit that invites us, not only invites us, but walks with us as we take that path of maintaining connection. The Romans passage that I could have included today has in chapter 5 this great teaching, while we were yet sinners, Christ came on our behalf. When we fail time after time, nonetheless, Christ is there making his way. It reminds me, it reminds me of the great Mark Twain story, the Twain story in which he, he talks about overnight the Mississippi River cutting a new path and this African-American man went to bed a slave and because of the path of the river awoke a free person. That's the grace of Christ. Nothing that we can do about it to accomplish some of the things that are required for healing. But if we allow the spirit in, there's an amazing change that can happen. That somehow we go to bed one way and wake up another. Somehow we feel estranged and disconnected and we awake and this force that springs up within us like water gushing up to eternal life gets us connected to some sense of meaning and we can say, aha, my life can have meaning. I can be connected. I'm worthy because Christ has made me worthy. May we think of the water in those terms this week. May we be people who quench our thirsts, our inner thirst, by turning to the Spirit and then become empowered to stretch that Spirit to those we touch this week. Let's take a moment to pray. We do so thank you, Lord, that while life can throw before us challenges that are so difficult, but somehow you can help us to make a way to cope, to find meaning. That you can empower us to be, to be movers towards the path of healing. That you can allow us to be people marked by your grace so that we can offer it to others. May this coming week be that kind of week for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you join me in hymn number?